from ABC7 New York, this is Eyewitness News Extra Time. Good evening and welcome to this edition of Eyewitness News Extra Time. I'm Joe Torres. We begin with some breaking news. It's happening in Brooklyn. Two NYPD officers are recovering in that borough at a Brooklyn hospital after they were shot while responding to a domestic call. Those shootings happened this afternoon in Crown Heights. Eyewitness News reporter Lucy Yang is at Kings County Hospital in East Flatbush, where the mayor and police commissioner are in the midst of a news conference there. Lucy. That's right, Joe. They're flushing out the details of what happened this afternoon. This case underscores the dangers the NYPD face every single day. Two officers responded to a domestic dispute call this afternoon, and now both officers are here at the hospital being treated for gunshot wounds. Thankfully, both are expected to make a complete recovery. As you mentioned, the mayor, the police commissioner, the chief of detectives are here in lobby D, in the lobby of building D, briefing us on what happened. This is what we know so far. The officers were called to Bergen Street in Crown Heights to a second floor apartment. We understand a mother had called 911 saying she was being attacked by her son. Her son, a 39-year-old man, grabbed one of the officers' gun and fired. Officials believe the other officer responded by shooting the suspect. Authorities report one officer was shot in the hand, the other in the leg. The 39-year-old suspect hit twice in the leg and abdomen. All are expected to survive. Here are some details on the suspect. His name is Melvin Butler, born in 84. We're told he has six prior arrests in New York, one prior in North Carolina. He is described as a man with a violent history. When he was asked to put his hands behind his back, that's when this call today turned especially violent. He, we understand he also has an open warrant from North Carolina and was previously convicted of murder in 2004, serving a 15-year sentence behind bars. He was released with an ankle bracelet at the time. Neighbors overheard the suspect tell his mother he was not going back to jail. He's saying this right before police arrived. This was a horrific incident uh, that, uh, because of their actions, a dangerous person is apprehended, and we have two officers that will be going home to their families. It was two in the beginning, and then it was four after. Then an ambulance man came and started pushing me and my kids and tell us to run. He said he's not going to jail. And how old was he? So that was just it. My kids is crying because they seeing all the blood, the glass, they seeing a boy wrapped up, they seeing too much. So now that's traumatizing to my kids. From now on, something needs to really be done here. Certainly a very traumatic incident for residents on that block. Now the news conference just wrapped behind me. Again, two police officers were shot today, but thanks to their quick actions, they will be going home to their families. We're live in Brooklyn. I'm Lucy Yang for Channel 7 Eyewitness News. Joe. Glad to hear those officers will be okay, Lucy. Thank you. We turn now to the weather. New York City's 701-day snowless streak. It's history, but a deep freeze is now just beginning behind the storm that dropped more than an inch of snow in Central Park. Some of the coldest weather of the season. It's going to feel like the single digits for tomorrow morning's commute. So let's get the exclusive AccuWeather forecast from meteorologist Jeff Smith. Jeff and anything that was slushy or wet will freeze over solid tonight. So you're going to watch out for some areas of black ice out there. We still have the winter weather advisory that'll expire in a little while until 7 p.m. New York City and points north and east.
Newark checking in with 2.1 inches of snow. Same deal with Islip on the island and there's Central Park with 1.6 inches. 1.2 of that occurred during the calendar day today. So that's how we broke that streak officially. Levittown on the island, three inches of snow. Same deal with Mount Sinai, New Jersey, South River, Middlesex County, three and a half inches. Sparta up in the northwest hills in New Jersey there in Sussex County, about three inches of snow. Still have some ice on our cameras out there. Changed over to freezing rain for a while and then back to snow. Kind of a parting shot of snow at the very end there. 28 degrees right now in the park. Feeling more like 17. Like Joe was saying, it'll feel more like the single digits by early tomorrow morning, courtesy of that wind, which is right now gusting up to about 28 miles per hour. Never got past the freezing mark today in New York City. So standing water and slush will freeze solid tonight. Definitely watch for some icy spots out there, especially on untreated surfaces. A cold wind tomorrow. 20s for highs will feel more like the teens during the so-called warmest part of the day, uh, despite a full day of sunshine. And look at that, our next shot at accumulating snow, a very wintry pattern here that comes in during the day on Friday. By the way, don't want to leave out what's going on along the Passaic River. Of course, people who live along that river have been dealing with major flooding the past couple of weeks. Finally, this is down to minor flood stage and expected to fall below flood stage during the next 24 hours. So that flood warning will be allowed to expire. Third at Newark right now, same deal at LaGuardia. You got mid 20s north and west of the city, upper 20s on the island at Islip, 27 down the shore at Belmar. All the precipitation exiting off to our north and east. We clear things out tonight and we cool things off in a big way. Our coldest of the season so far, dipping down to 20, maybe even getting down to about 19 in the park. Uh, middle and upper teens north and west, only getting into the middle 20s for highs tomorrow. Despite sunshine, that sun will be deceptive and ineffective. As we head into the day on Thursday, clouds increase, could be a couple of flurries showing up Thursday afternoon, but there's a better shot at some steadier accumulating snow on Friday as a storm tries to get organized here off of the East Coast. If it's close enough, we could be dealing with maybe one to three inches of snow yet again during the day on Friday. In terms of the wind chills, and this is what it will feel like tomorrow morning, 12 in the park, single numbers in many areas north and west and never feeling warmer than the teens during the day. Brisk and cold out there, clearing tonight. Watch for icy spots as anything wet or slushy will freeze solid. We're down to about 19 in the city. Look at the wind tomorrow gusting up to 35 miles per hour. We will call it downright blustery, quite cold, despite sunshine, only getting up to 27, feeling no warmer than the teens. Clear to partly cloudy for tomorrow night, 22 in Midtown, teens in many outlying areas. So on Thursday, again, cloudier day out there, maybe some flurries in the afternoon, about 34. Snow on Friday, likely to be on the light side, but accumulating and problematic nonetheless for potentially both the morning and the evening commutes. Could be one to three inches in parts of the area. 24, back to free Frigid on Saturday, and then we start, start thawing things out as we head into early next week. 39 by Monday, and by this time next week, Joe, we could be talking about temperatures in the 40s. We'll send it back over to you. That'll be welcome after some frigid temperatures. Yes, it will. All right, Jeff, thank Alrighty. you. As we continue with Eyewitness News, extra time. Accused Gilgo Beach killer Rex Hewerman gets indicted on a new murder charge. We dive deeper into how detectives used forensics and some tricky tactics to connect him to a fourth woman's death. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. 
to the latest now on the Gilgo Beach murder case. Accused killer Rex Hewerman pleaded not guilty today to a fourth murder charge for the death of 25-year-old Maureen Brainerd Barnes. She disappeared in 2007 while working as an escort. As Long Island reporter Shante Lance shows us, prosecutors say they link Hewerman to her death through DNA evidence found on the victim and in the trash. Maureen was my older sister who was always there for me when I needed her. The pain still raw for the younger sister of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. The 25-year-old disappeared in July of 2007. Her remains were later found near the bodies of three other women, all escorts along Long Island's Gilgo Beach. Maureen was a mother of two amazing children, and they will forever be without their mother. Maureen's daughter, Nicolette, was just seven. There are countless times I needed her and she was not there. I remember she read to me every night and now I can no longer remember the sound of her voice. Today, Maureen's death is the fourth that led to a new murder charge for accused Gilgo Beach serial killer, Rex Hewerman. He said, I'm not guilty of these charges. He's looking forward to fight these charges and, and we're doing that. Rex Hewerman was charged with second degree murder by the grand jury in a superseding indictment. Well, the biggest uh, change is the DNA evidence. Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney says this Monster Jogger energy drink can was recovered from a trash can on the platform of the Massapequa Park Long Island Railroad train station. Investigators photographed Hewerman's daughter, Victoria, drinking from it while riding the train. They say her DNA helped link her father, Rex Hewerman, to a hair left on Maureen Brainerd Barnes. The, the hair that was found on uh, Brainerd uh, Barnes, it was found on the buckle uh, of the belt that secured her lower body. Prosecutors say DNA from a pizza crust linked him to the other three victims. Hewerman's estranged wife, Asa Ellerup, their daughter, Victoria, and their attorney attended Hewerman's arraignment. This indictment, superseding indictment, including the fourth victim, again, makes clear that Asa Ellerup and her children were not involved even in the jurisdiction when these murders took place. It's stated in the DA's bail application. Meanwhile, the family of Maureen Brainerd Barnes has this final wish. I want to ask everyone to please remember the victims, Maureen, Megan, Melissa, and Amber. I hope that everyone will also remember the other victims from whom charges has not been filed against any suspect. At least 10 bodies have been found along Gilgo Beach. Rex Hewerman has been tied to four of them. He's due back in court on February 6th. In Riverhead, Shante Lands, Channel 7, Eyewitness News. And joining us now with more is Nathan Lentz, professor of biology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Thanks for joining us tonight, Professor Lentz. Appreciate it. Kindly put this into forensic DNA perspective, if you will. What is it that investigators found or uncovered that enabled them to link and then ultimately charge Rex Hewerman to victim number four? Um, well, it's my understanding that they found a small hair um, in their original investigation years ago, uh, but it did not have sufficient material to do uh, extensive testing. Um, and so uh, they didn't even have mitochondrial DNA results at that time. However, um, in the past few years, technology has caught up and we've been able to get uh, DNA profiles from very, very small, uh, even very degraded uh, biological samples. And so what you found in this case was um, a full genome sequencing effort of this trace DNA that was able to connect it to uh, the suspect's wife. 
And uh, the investigators have confirmed that the wife herself was out of town. And one important thing to remember is that they're establishing a pattern of the crime for all of the victims. And so while uh, the suspect's DNA has not been found on this fourth victim, um, it's the same pattern of the crime. And it also does connect to his wife. So it's part of a larger story in which this was these were serial uh, murders. In layman's terms, if you will, Professor, the difference between nuclear DNA, if I'm saying it right, and mitochondrial DNA testing, and why the results from the former are more conclusive than results from the latter. Well, mitochondrial DNA uh, looks at just a few genetic markers, and they're ones that you will share completely with uh, your mother uh, and other females male relatives. Um, but this was nuclear DNA. And, and, and there's literally millions of pieces of information that was looked at um, that can make a pretty definitive match. In fact, I would say a completely definitive match. Uh, this is going beyond even the usual profiling uh, that's been done in the past called STR analysis. Uh, the SNP analysis is much more conclusive even than that. There's simply no doubt that the hair that was found uh, on Miss Brainerd Barnes uh, is, is a genetic match uh, to the victim, um, excuse me, to the suspect's wife. Um, and uh, I don't think anybody is going to dispute uh, that the hair came from there uh, on genetic terms. But um, what really the breakthrough here is the sensitivity. Uh, there was just so little material that the technology didn't allow this kind of analysis in the past. Uh, but now it does full, complete genome analysis with even this trace material. Yeah, I mean, that must be the reason why, Professor, because we've had the hair. The investigators have had the hair for years. So now it seems like suddenly we're getting the results. Is it because the technology has caught up with the evidence? That's exactly right. The technology has been uh, developed uh, more, more than a decade ago, uh, but it, it has to undergo um, very careful analysis uh, by the federal government before it's uh, it's released to the, the forensic community to use by law enforcement. Uh, and that happened in 2021. And that's when this case really broke wide open was when this technology uh, was released to the public, so to speak, um, rather than just uh, in, in development. Yep, and uh, once the new technology came on board, um, this evidence, uh, which was pre previously unusable and now became um, not just usable, but very definitive. Professor, we'll end with this. And you heard Shantae talk about it there at the end of her piece. Investigators today said they will now focus their attention on the six other sets of remains found in the same area as the Gilgo Four. Are you confident, Professor, that with the advances in DNA testing, that more evidence will soon come to light and perhaps more indictments? Yes, I think we will see um, a lot of cold cases being reopened uh, or rather being pursued. Um, not all of them are probably attributable uh, uh, to this particular defendant. Unfortunately, th there might be more people uh, involved. But yes, I think you're going to see more and more cold cases being solved by this new technology. All right. Thanks for the education and the insight. Professor Nathan Lentz from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Thanks for joining us tonight. Appreciate it. My pleasure. There have been so many twists and turns in the 13-year investigation into the Gilgo Beach killings. This Friday, we kick off a nine-part series that takes an in-depth look into the murders and the arrest of Rex Hewerman. These young women went missing between July of 2007 and September of 2010. For the next 13 years, their cases went unsolved. Until today.
Rex Hurman. Rex Hurman. Rex Hurman. Rex Hurman. Rex Hurman is now in custody. Ilgo Beach has been used to discard human remains for some time. This is the perfect place to dump a body. I found another one. Remore really scared me. Body count. Body count. Body count. People in our area are starting to get nervous. We're anxious to have this over with. And that's when I remember the police commissioner saying for the first time the word serial killer. We could have a serial killer. <laughs> Her last phone call was to 911. If not for Shannon Gilbert, these women would not have been found. Find this killer before he strikes and hurts and murders someone you love. He believes the killer is likely still in the area. What has Rex Hurman been doing all this time? Likely following the police department's every move. He had over 200 searches pertaining to the Gilgo investigation. It really makes me wonder, like, was he watching us? This guy made a mistake somewhere. He said someday that they'll figure out what that was. Witness to Gilgo Beach begins streaming Friday on ABC 7 New York. And as we continue with Eyewitness News Extra Time, a closer look at the chaos and unrest in Ecuador and its ripple effects here at home. Thousands of military and police officers raided several prisons in Ecuador on Sunday. They searched for weapons, ammunition, and explosives. They also tried to restore order after a week of attacks and detentions of more than 100 officials. There is an unprecedented spiral of violence in that South American country right now. Recently, armed gunmen stormed a live television broadcast as the nation watched in horror. The attack on the station is just part of a wider pattern of violence, much of it sparked by a top gang leader's escape from prison. New York is home to many Ecuadorian Americans. Many of them live in Queens. And today we spoke with New York City Councilman Francisco Moya. He represents parts of Queens. He's also a proud Ecuadorian American who has monitored the unrest in his home country. Currently a 60-day state of emergency and a nationwide curfew throughout Ecuador, all of it imposed by the president, Daniel Noboa. What impact, by the way, has the state of emergency and the curfew had on quelling the violence? Well, look, Joe, you know, I think that what we're seeing here is an unprecedented uh, violence that has uh, threatened Ecuador, uh, Ecuador's democracy here. Um, you know, Ecuador was uh, one of the most peaceful uh, countries in South America. Uh, look, my parents are there. Uh, I used to visit Ecuador every year. I have family there. Uh, to me, what we're seeing right now uh, is truly saddening and alarming uh, at the crisis that we're facing here. Uh, what I have done is talk to the Council General uh, here in New York and also the ambassador in Washington. Uh, we've discussed some of the things that have been going on in Ecuador. The United States has uh, reached out uh, and Ecuador has uh, accepted the support uh, that the government is uh, giving them uh, because what we want to do is make sure that we're stabilizing uh, the country here. Um, and I think a lot of this stems from uh, what happened a few years ago mm -hmm. when the uh, military bases from uh, the United States uh, were removed uh, from Ecuador with the previous uh, president. And what we saw there was it created that destabilization. We had uh, a port city of Manta, which is one of the cities that has been plagued with uh, the gang violence that we're seeing right here. Um, once they left, it really created this big vacuum and allowed a lot of the narcos to come into Ecuador and use that as a transport city between uh, Colombia, Venezuela, yeah. uh, and Mexico.
How big is the population, Ecuadorian American, here in the New York City metropolitan area? I think it's the largest, right, in the country? It's the largest outside of, of Ecuador. It's 35% of the population uh, is here in New York. Over 420,000 Ecuadorians live here in the city of New York, and most of them reside uh, in the borough of Queens, in the district that I represent. In what way can people here in New York help their, their brothers, their sisters, their moms and dads who are in the midst of this violence back home? Yeah, look, you know, we've been working uh, very closely with the Council General's uh, office here and, and also been reaching out to the mayor's office. But, you know, I think a lot of this comes from federal assistance that can help uh, the country that's in need. Uh, we've They have numbers that they can access through the Council General that has opened up a uh, direct line to the counselor here. Uh, that needs to, if you need to connect with family members that you haven't heard of, uh, heard from, or, you know, have questions about uh, the ongoing violence that's taking place there, you could call that uh, number directly uh, and someone will uh, help uh, connect you with the family member uh, and give you updates of what's going on. Is it wise to travel to Ecuador right now? Yeah, look, I, I think, you know, right now it, it, it's, it's, been, it's been stabilized. The airports are open. Uh, everything is coming back to normal again. I think the, the, the worst of it is over now. Uh, and I think what we want to really uh, tell the public is that, look, Ecuador and its people are uh, a very uh, uh, passive, very peaceful uh, nation that we live in. Uh, we're not going to be deterred by uh, the violence that we're seeing right now, by uh, these gangs that have taken over. Uh, we are very hopeful that uh, a lot of support that has come globally uh, to Ecuador to help them throughout this crisis uh, is really going to help uh, bring back the stability uh, and the peace that we've always known and loved. Uh, tourism is a very big uh, industry. I was just going to uh, ask you about that. Has this violence country. impacted tourism? Yeah. Because you talked about the economy and the impact. That is a big, big industry in Ecuador. Yeah, it's the number one industry uh, in, in, in Ecuador. Um, most people are employed by uh, tourism and hospitality. Uh, the importance of, of what that means to a country that's already struggling economically, uh, we want to resolve this quickly because it's the most beautiful country in South America, and I may be biased, Joe, but uh, look, I, I was able to, to grow up uh, and spend time uh, in Ecuador. My family's still over there. Uh, we have the Galapagos Islands. Yep. We have the Andes Mountains. We have the Amazon jungle. Beautiful place to come and visit. Uh, we don't want that to be deterred uh, by the violence that we're seeing here right now. We've so much to see in Ecuador. For much more of our interview with New York City Councilman Francisco Moya, you can tune into Tiempo this Sunday morning at 1130 on Channel 7. As we continue with Eyewitness News Extra Time, a rough day in Central Park. Canines let the fur fly as they enjoyed a rare snow day. It was not a snow day for New York City school students, but it was for city dogs. They made the most of Central Park, where more than an inch of snow fell for the first time in nearly two years. Those dogs, they ran around in the fluffy white stuff. For those of you keeping track, it had been 701 days since the five boroughs got an inch of snow. That goes back to February of 2022. Owners say their dogs have missed playing in the snow. She did. Yeah, we all did, I think. She loves to just run in the deep snow and chase sticks and find buried treasure. She just runs around. She eats snow, plays with other dogs. She loves it. <laughs> A good time for the pooches there. The snow is also good news 
for the grass. The Central Park Conservancy says it provides a layer of protection against the wear of foot traffic there in the winter. Woof, woof, good time in the snow. That wraps up this edition of Eyewitness News Extra Time. Thanks for joining us. I'm Joe Torres. We're back live for Eyewitness News at 11 o'clock tonight. We hope to see you then.